Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> Last night, uh, Jack talked about the journey of the shaman. Talked about those different stages, renunciation, and then a quest, and then finding a discipline, and then going through the hardship that leads to greater understanding, and finally returning and applying what is learned. Tonight I want to talk a bit more in detail about the hardship part of the journey. Just getting a sense of where people are at. Uh, I don't think people are ready for the return just yet. <laughs> and there has been to some extent the renunciation that got us here and has also started a question that keeps us on our cushion. My guess is that for many people, the second day of practice is hardship and questions. And for other people who've been practicing for 12 days or so now, there might be opening to new layers of exploration after that settling in period. The process may get subtler, not as gross kinds of suffering, although they come and go, but there's still the movements of the mind, even when things get quiet and delightful, especially with the wind today, that seems to stir things up. And so if you had some tranquility and, and peace, that might have been affected by that energy as well. The reason why I want to talk about the hardship, in addition to the fact that that's probably where many people are, are at right now in the retreat, is that we seem to learn a lot from the hardship part. That's the initiation to the understanding. It's true that we learn from the pleasant too. We can feel the possibility of the mind that's not grasping. Know that that's true potential. We also learn what happens as the pleasant leaves. We start to grasp again, which just changes it to more hardship. And at times there are genuine experiences of peace and bliss, as I say, but if it's lasting too long, if it's lasting very long in the practice, if you're kind of getting a sense of coasting on your calm and equanimity, and just to check in and see whether you're going forward and expanding your limits not to go looking for trouble, it'll find you soon enough, but just to get a sense whether there's 
a true willingness to explore. See if there's more to learn. The way we grow is by exploring new unknown territory. And by its very nature, that can be frightening because the familiar is comfortable and it's safe. And so it takes courage to start going into new terrain. The fright that comes, the fear that comes, is really the the matrix, the crossroads of our practice as we explore this new territory. Fear or aversion. It's not that that's bad. In fact, it's the it's the doorway to our growth. When we get in touch with fear, it shows us those places that we're vulnerable, that we can just get in touch with new areas of our humanness where we don't have it all together in a solid show where we present to the world. So fear is really a signal. I'm at the edge of what I'm willing to work with. And then the question is, am I willing to accept the challenge? Just to make this relevant, I'll just ask you for a moment to go inside and check in with yourself. What are your edges that you've been coming up with, coming up against these last couple of days? What are the edges of your practice right now? Body pain? Emotions? Resistance? Boredom? Excitation? Letting go of the pleasant? What are your frontiers? And as they've been coming up, how have you been working with them? You might be familiar with the instructions and ways to do it. What's been going on lately for you? What's been your relationship to those edges? Have you been playing it safe? Have you pulled back? Are you meeting the challenge? Not with a pass-fail, but just a willingness to explore. I once heard somebody give a talk, a very dynamic woman, who said, most people are content with having a C average in life. Just kind of, so they're not failed. They haven't been pinned as really blowing it. But it takes a special kind of courage to go that step further and go into new territory. 
pointed out that the people who have that stance, that safe stance, are busy looking at the others who just go shooting for the stars. You know, wow, look at them go there. Boy, I don't know how they do that. Wow. And feeling very comfortable in that safe environment of their, their living room and yet missing out on life. The Buddha talked about the fact that being contented with where you're at is a very dangerous thing. No stopping within, it's called. We had a series of talks by Sayadaw Upandita that Jack mentioned last night. A number of talks leading to this quality. No stopping within, no stopping within. Wherever you are, until you're a fully enlightened being who has no more greed, hatred, and delusion, there's more to discover, more to let go of, more to open up to. But that means taking the risk of being humbled, of meeting your demons. And although it seems like you might lose if you take that risk, and that's the thing that keeps us back if we don't, it's really very empowering. Because as we do take the risk, we tap into the courage to face adversity. Whatever it happens to be now, it's summoning up the quality of willingness to work. So being humbled is actually a very valuable experience. Since Jack talked a bit about his experience with Upandita last night, I thought I might have a little true confessions and share with you some of the humbled experiences that I had. Somebody said, some yogi said, it's very comforting to know that the people up here go through difficulties in their practice. Well, you can get a lot of comfort from my retreat there. It was the most difficult retreat I ever did. Nothing came close to it. Because I actually like retreats. It's the world that sometimes is difficult for me, but retreats, well, I've kind of gotten the hang of it, letting go and seeing the thoughts and keeping things light, putting in the effort. Upandita, his style was not simple and easy. That was the style I'd been practicing for with, with many years, for many years, putting in real effort because I do value the practice and I've seen how much that allows for growth. But still in that simple and easy style, just trying to keep a balance. His emphasis was on effort, more effort and more effort. No limit. And I recall having a couple of key interviews where I just reached the depths of what I could handle. I remember one interview. There's a translator named Agasita who was 
just wonderful. He was my lifesaver. He took pity on me or compassion. And he kind of clued me into things when they were starting to get a little rough. I would report my sensations and sittings like that. And at the very end of the interview, the Sayadaw would look up from his books because he would be reading most of the time, just kind of, oh, kind of distracting to have a, a yogi here. <clears throat> and he'd say something, and that was the, the report for the day. <clears throat> that was the suggestion for the day. Remember one interview, <clears throat> this translator took off his glasses. That was the clue. When he'd take off his glasses and he kind of rub his face. <laughs> that was the warning that there was trouble ahead. <laughs> and he said, the Sayadaw wonders whether you can make the effort that it takes to do this practice the real way. I was crushed. Just, I was really trying hard. And I just saw, there's no way I can be practicing for approval out there. And that's his way of really summoning up the courage to go even more and to just test your edges, test your limits. It was humbling. Another interview, I started to get very proud about my practice. Just Things were going pretty well, finally, after about three or four weeks. And I was going about my reporting, couldn't way to tell him how good things were going, what a good yogi I was. And Agasita took off his glasses, <laughs> rubbed his face. Sayadaw wonders whether you need his guidance. <laughs> <laughs> At first I thought he, he thought, well, gee, I don't need his guidance anymore. That's pretty great. <laughs> when I looked into his eyes and he was boring a hole through my brain, <clears throat> it, was, it was hard. <laughs> and he worked with different yogis differently. Some, some yogis he was like a grandfather to. And some others he worked very sternly. He worked hard with Joseph and with Jack and a number of people. It's not to say he was just light and not to, not to encourage people to practice hard, but some, they knew that he was kind of on their side. <clears throat> the person in front of me and the person behind me <clears throat> in the interviews, he was scheduled each day for an interview, he had a different kind of attitude than, than mine in my relationship. And the door was open as you waited outside for the interview. <clears throat> the person in front of me, this fellow Steve, who has a tremendous laugh, you could hear throughout the hall uh, during the discourses. He's a really great guy. I love him dearly. He would be in the interviews and there would be just laughter and <laughs> laughter and the side out would be laughing and Agasita would be laughing and Steve would be laughing and he come out just just light. I'd walk in and the place was a morgue. <laughs> One time I said to Agasita, 
gee, I wish I could have fun in here too, you know. <laughs> Nothing. <clears throat> and I'd, I'd do my reporting, and he'd sometimes look up and he'd say, Yogi? Yes, Yogi? And then I'd go out, kind of slow walk out, and the next person in line came in to report, did his bows, and I'd hear, Yes, Bill? <laughs> Bill? <laughs> oh, boy. I had also some personal situations going on, some difficulties. My father was dying and uh, we had some other personal situations. Thought I'd get a little sympathy, you know. <clears throat> Leave your drama at the door, nothing. Just what are your sensa- sensations? You know, what do you see? How long are you noting? <clears throat> Body dukkha. Just incredible. Finally, after a few weeks, I, I had asked him uh, a number of times if I could switch from the abdomen to the nostrils because I've been working with the nostrils, uh, with the, the in and out for quite a few years and can get fairly concentrated on it. And I had been practicing for about a year, anticipating this retreat, working with the belly, and it just, it was not nearly as, as clear for me. So after a number of weeks of him seeing, why this is a pretty slow yogi, uh, finally he let me come up to the, to the nostrils. When I started watching at the nostrils, my nostrils started to bleed. Just, just, it was gross. I, I was so thankful I could finally go up there and then it was like the concentration was just kind of, you know, I don't know whether it was concentration or fear or what, just kind of boring a hole in my nostril. So I was plugging up my nose with tissues and vegetable oil and all sorts of things. And then that one kind of cooled out and then I had stuff in my ears. I've got a jukebox going most of the time when I, when I sit. I can usually just let it be in the background. This time... It was just so loud and so incessant and just so merciless between this, the jukebox and this intense ringing that started, just loud and, and loud hissing and ringing. And finally, I couldn't handle it anymore. I thought that if he let me go back to the belly, I could get away from my head. You know, so I walked in and I, I said. It's not working. I have to get out of here. You know, please let me go back. No, you went up there. You stay up there. You know. It was, it was good. It was very valuable. And that went away. Not went away. I just learned to work with it. And then it, it was just another object in the background. Then when things started to settle down, I started to get pimples on my butt. You know, I couldn't sit. You know, then my shoulders started to freeze and. I remembered something, Joseph's contribution to, one of his main contributions to 20th century Dharma, if it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) It's a very profound statement. It really is. It's funny, but it's also, it's the way things are. There's no way that you're going to find that perfect balance and keep it there. And just to realize that, there's no place to stand. 
Instead of feeling frustrated when it goes away, it's okay, what's the next thing now? So at times it just felt like my heart was just being ripped open. And the more I tried to control what was happening, the more obviously out of control it was. And so all I could do finally was just surrender to the moment. And it was very powerful and very valuable. And I learned a great deal in that retreat. When we get in touch with our edges, whether it's body pain or resistance, see what the fear is around that. Because the fear is just adding something on top of the experience to the pain. When you look at fear, you see it's just a projection into the future. This experience might get worse more than I can handle. What fear does is it takes you out of the moment. And when we can just settle into the moment and experience what's happening right now, what we usually find, what I usually find, is it's bearable. You might be just screaming inside, but here you are sitting and it's bearable. The fear cuts off the possibility of working with it if we buy into it and say, no, I better not go there. Remember something that Mark Twain wrote, if you think something is impossible, you'll make it impossible. And that's very true. So if we can use fear and those edges as a signal to explore, then it's really a gift. And what we see is everything is workable. We just open up to new capacities of, of what we're able to, to deal with. In Tibetan Buddhism, it's called the lion's roar. This is from Myth of Freedom. The lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including the emotions, is a workable situation. A reminder in the practice of meditation we realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we regard them as regressive, as a return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. A relationship, a dance, begins to develop as you work with the difficulty then the most powerful energies become absolutely workable rather than taking you over because there's nothing to take you over if you're not putting up any resistance. Whenever there's no resistance, a sense of rhythm occurs. The music and the dance take place at that same time. That is the lion's roar, that whatever occurs in the samsaric mind is regarded as the path. Everything is workable. And as we can start working with those things, we have the, the feeling of experience. 
experience that knows that I can handle it. That I've been there before. It's such an interesting factor to come in touch with. You know, I'm a big sports fan and I, uh, when the playoffs come and they talk about the experience factor, you know, it's so interesting to see that the, the teams that have been there before just know what it's like. It's not like it's a mystery as far as knowing there's the playoffs, it's just another game, whatever. but that they know that they've gone through that pressure and have been there before is that intangible factor. It's the same way with us in the sitting practice. We've been there before, we've encountered it, we've gone through it, and there's a real sense of empowerment that comes through our willingness to work that way. And as that empowerment comes, there's a real confidence. How we process our edges determines how the new ones affect us. It influences the future patterns of processing. When we have a new experience, a difficult experience that we are not willing to process, it just recreates the fear. And so when new situations come up, we avoid them. And that cuts off new possibilities. So from this being humbled, having a sense of experience, and empowerment that develops a confidence and that becomes one of the trusting mind. That ability to let go of control, of trying to set things up so you don't have to encounter them and that there's that trust that you get what you need to grow. That here is the challenge in the moment And here's the lesson to be learned. And instead of trusting or not trusting in myself, can I do it? Can I make it this time? There develops a sense of just trusting in the awareness. Just trusting in the moment. Not that it's a test as to whether you're passing or failing, but as you're trusting in the awareness of what's happening, in that moment there's not fear. There's just what there is. And so it doesn't have to be this long obstacle course. It's just right now, right here, can I be mindful without pushing away the unpleasant, without identifying with how I'm doing? Because that just leads to pride. Oh, I did it. I'm really great. That's different than I know that the capacity is there. So I ask, take a look at your edges. Do you pull back from them? Are you willing to work with them? Can you welcome the resistance and the fears? Can they be messengers to help you wake up? Can you develop that sense of confidence and trust in the moment?
And that's what we're doing here as we're willing to be present just for how things are unfolding. That's all I have to say right now. Maybe we can take some time for questions. start to get tired, start to get sleepy, are you willing to work through that, stay with the schedule? Do you go take a nap or do you take it a bit easier? There's a difference between when you're actually fatigued, when you're really exhausted, or when you just want to keep things comfortable. Can you just explore new terrain? Are you attached to clarity and crystal clear awareness? When you're sitting, what gets you up from the sitting? Are you willing to stay there until there's a real reason to get up? And just to explore your edges that way. Sitting until there's a real reason. Walking staying with the walking. Can you be continuous in your, in your mindfulness? Or do you like to take breaks? Just those things, if you stay continuous, you'll meet up with your edges. Is that... Now, the first retreat I gave a talk on balance of effort. And I don't mean to say that this has to be an ordeal of self-torture and seeing how much you can put yourself through. Because that other side is very important in practice. It's checking in and seeing what's needed that will help me be most mindful. But it takes a real willingness to, to listen to your heart and see... Am I taking it easy or do I really need the space because I'm starting to get kind of tight, too tight to see mindfully? At that time, it might be appropriate to just soften a bit. So I just put that out, not to have any kind of model that you've got to be grim and uh, and struggling because mindfulness isn't struggling. It's a soft, light touch, but a willingness to really be here and see things in a new way, to see what's happening. You just sit up on the cushion and whatever happens, happens. It's interesting, with the, especially with the first two days, first two or three days, I go through a lot of sleepiness at the beginning of a retreat. 
And after a while, if you're willing to stay there with it, work with it, not beat yourself up for it, which is just more ex- exhausting, but each time you doze off and realize you've dozed off, okay, here you are again. If you're willing to do that, you go through it to the other side. But if you take a nap each time you start getting tired, that's what you're reinforcing. Oh, I'll just take it, take it easy. And so it takes some determination, some resolution to just be with things no matter what's going on. Just sit here on the cushion. Joseph was here. Uh, Joseph was here. The uh, first retreat gave a talk about how effort, by its very nature, arouses energy in the system. It's not the effort that's struggling. It's the effort to really be wholehearted in your practice. So it's true. That's that's a very powerful tool to work with sleepiness. Other things to do, just as suggestions, it hasn't, hasn't come up uh, to the group as a whole, but look at your posture and straighten up. Open your eyes, that's fine. Taking some deeper breaths, just as a way to arouse energy, it's an easier object to notice. And using the standing meditation is very helpful. One other thing you can do is see if you can watch yourself fall asleep. Just here it's coming in and just turn all your awareness to sleepiness. Sleepiness, sleepiness, sleepiness. Just to discover what that process is about. And that often arouses energy as well. And then when you doze off, as soon as you realize it, no problem. That's all in the past. No more discursive thought about how badly you've been doing. Just, okay, here I am right now. Jack says you can walk backwards in the desert. That'll wake you up too. And if you hadn't been willing to stay there with it, you never would discover that. The only sleepiness I've had has been around the last sitting. And it, it seems to, and I started yawning and seems to be, you know, whatever you call it, an authentic tiredness. And, you know, it just seems that I need so much sleep, at least that's what 
I don't believe it. And, and I'm wondering if, you know, if there is a value in sitting if I have no clarity and it seems like an authentic tiredness and I can't be mindful, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it only comes up at 9, there can be a value in it. There can be a value in just sitting through that difficult sitting. That's one way to work with it. The other way is if you decide to go to, go to bed early, you might find you're on a different rhythm. And so get up early. But I would suggest using the schedule as a jumping off point and then expanding the, the hours of practice. In the Upandita retreat, four hours, four hours of sleep, that was it. Yeah. And if you didn't, you, you had difficulty with it, you were sleeping, you were sleeping on the cushion, you know, but you, that was what you did. Yeah. And what is interesting, what I find in my own practice, is as I'm more willing to put in the effort to be mindful, the mind isn't reacting quite as much and after a while the need for sleep is diminished tremendously. But you don't learn those new possibilities unless you're willing to work with it. So if you go to sleep earlier, make sure you get up earlier. Okay? But it's fine to just sit through that, that last sitting. That's, I call that sitting when I'm practicing the killer sitting for me. This is a hard sitting after a talk and you've been aroused and then you, you put in a full day. It's difficult. Um, sometimes if you sit up here, you can see all the, the nods going on. It's fine. Sit there through that too. I, I guess I knew that there was a value in it, but I'm not still clear on what the value is. <laughs> Why don't you just discover for yourself what the value is and, and tell me later. Did everybody hear that? The word why is a problem in this practice. Because as soon as you get into why, you're getting into figuring out. Rather, just what is. 
The figuring out takes you out of the moment and gets you lost, as you know, very easily, very quickly. If you just stay with what is, the things you need to get answered are answered. And instead of getting into the process, processing that way, processing through the mind, you get into the actual process of one moment into the next. And that's a a much more uh, transforming process to tune into. That's not to say that processing outside in the world isn't valuable. It's very valuable. Good counseling or therapy or body work or stuff like that, that's, that's wonderful. But here is a different approach that gets to the root of where the problems are created. When you get into that tendency of there's, wanting to... There's like, you know, then there's, then there's the, 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 the thinking, thinking, and then the grasping, right. pushing that away, pushing that away, right. while being what is, and, and it is. Right. It ta- yeah. You know what it takes? It takes a real resolution of mind. Not to give in to that tendency. Just no matter what, as soon as you recognize the word why come up, you won't buy into it and just come right back to here and see what is what is happening. See if you can get in touch with that resolution. If you can, it, it creates the structure with which to, to work. So you've already committed to not buying into it. And so get in touch with that resolve. <coughs> Mindfulness is just observing the changing nature of process. Not in the thinking mind. It's just seeing what's here now without grasping, condemning, or identifying and seeing moment after moment how things are changing. That's the bare facts, bare attention. Investigation is that quality of looking carefully of exploring the process so that it's it's that that attitude of discovery which isn't discursive analyzing it's just looking more carefully at this process moment after moment does that make sense? Okay, so I think we can stop here. Jack has some announcements. As I said in the first evening, the opening of this retreat, um, it's a privilege to be together with so many of you who practiced for a long time. It's also a new cycle in the 
teachings of Vipassana in this country. It's been about 12 years of these retreats and 10 years uh, of the Lomi Vipassana course that we started here. Um, And at this time, a number of the people who are teaching together with myself, uh, Sharon, Joseph, Michelle, are all off in different places, mostly in Asia, doing further practice. And it seems both fitting due to the number of years and the maturity of the Sangha, and also as a response to the fact that there are many fewer teachers, to begin to call on the understanding and the uh, wisdom of people who've sat for a long time in the Sangha to help in the teaching of the retreats. And so that's being done this year in two ways. One is there's a, a small teacher training program that's starting that will probably grow over some years um, later this spring or summer. But the second, more immediate for this retreat, is what we did in the last 10-day retreat and also last summer in Santa Rosa, was to ask a group of old students, most of whom who have sat as much as anybody in the retreat, just to pick a, a certain number, and ask them in pairs to run small group interviews or question and answer groups for other students. And so the way that the interviews will happen for you during this retreat will alternate. You'll have on one interview day an interview with Jamie or with myself, and on the next interview day, which will be two days from that, you'll have a small group with a pair of students at the retreat who are old yogis and who have done quite a bit of practice. Um, There are two ways to view this. The way that, in fact, it happened last retreat where the groups went beautifully and the people who helped teach them were quite pleased and those who were uh, in them as students learned a lot was the spirit of Kalyanamitra, which is the Pali or Sanskrit word for teacher in the Theravada tradition. And it really means good friend, someone who shares their understanding and inspiration with another. And so it's a a sense of Kalyanamitra of other students sharing their understanding or telling you they don't know if that happens to be the case. Someone asked whether it was not more like the blind leading the blind. But in fact, um, as it worked out, it's, uh, it turned out to be really a beautiful process. And so starting tomorrow and the day following, some of you will be scheduled with groups with Jamie and I, and some of you will be scheduled with groups of, uh, led by a pair of old students. Um, a couple of things to request from you for that. The first is that they're also sitting, so they'll do the 45 minute or however long the group is with So this is the first night of the 10 day retreat. A day has passed. And even though you are, for the most part, somewhat experienced meditators, nevertheless the beginning of most retreats, for most everyone, has its difficulties. Settling down of the body, quieting of the mind, aches and pains and restlessness and sleepiness. Is that not so? (laughs) Good, just checking in there. Probably happens till the... 3,500th retreat. 
Anyway, what I'd like to do this evening for the first full talk is to look at the context within which we practice the the journey or the opening of discovery that is the heart of our purpose here. Now, there's a story which I told in the last retreat. You have to forgive me, I'll repeat it for those of you who were here before. Of an old woman in New York who goes to her travel agent and she says, uh, please get me a ticket to Tibet. And he says, Tibet? You always go to Miami. Why do you want to go to Tibet? She says, I want to see the guru. He says, it's a long way, it's hard, it's a lot of difficulty. She says, never mind, get me the ticket. So she gets her ticket, and gets on the plane, eventually with all her stuff, flies to India, takes the Indian train from Delhi up to Sikkim, already difficult, carrying her baggage, and gets the border pass, and they say, why, why, where are you going? She says, I'm going to Tibet. I want to see the guru. They said, but you know, you only have three words with the guru. She says, it doesn't matter. I want to see him. So goes up on the bus from Gangtok up to the Tibetan Plateau, a long Indian bus ride in the mountains, very difficult. Gets off, no roads at that point. Gets on the horse caravan with the other Tibetans. Where are you going, lady? I'm going to see the guru. But you can only see him for a moment, only three words. It's all right, I, I must go. So she goes and finally they arrive at this huge mountain with a monastery on the top and joins all the pilgrims in line and over a day or two gets up till it's her turn to go in and pass the guards in the door and they say, remember now, just three words. And I know, I know. She walks in, sits down and there's a guru in his kind of red robes and a little scraggly beard sitting there and she looks at him and she says, Sheldon, come home. <laughs> Somehow, in our practice here, in this retreat in Mental Physics Institute, which I swear to you, after a dozen trips to Asia and being in many of the great monasteries throughout Asia, the feeling and the number of people practicing and the the intensity of the practice makes this, for this time, a really great monastery. There's no question about it. But somehow, what's necessary for us is to bring the practice into the West and into our lives in a way that is both universal and meaningful to us without living in Tibet or in a cave or in Thailand or Burma or wherever. And one of the preoccupations of human beings throughout known history in every great culture has been to discover that which is sacred or holy or transcendental, that which goes beyond the limited sense of ourself. And in all these cultures, it's the journey of the yogi, of the sadhu, of the healer, of the sage, of the shaman, of the wise man or wise woman even though it takes place in India or Egypt or here or China, it's the same journey, the journey of discovery inside to see that which is true about our life, to become whole or complete. And this journey always begins in the same place and ends in the same way. It has six basic stages to it. The first step of the journey 
is renunciation. Of even the most satisfying work and uh, things in the world around us, somehow seeing, at times with frustration, at times just with wisdom, a certain lack of depth to it all. And so there comes inside, looking at the culture and the conditioning, and you're supposed to have a family, or you're supposed to have a job, or make money, or all these things, and that's fine in this life. But isn't there something more to it? So there comes inside a call to shamanhood, a call to undertake this adventure or this journey. And it's a turning of the heart and the mind away from the offerings of society and the culture to the more universal, saying, yes, those are fine, those are okay, but there must be something more to discover, more to life than having a nice house and a nice car and kind of getting through the night. So there's some sense of turning away. And the second part of this renunciation is an understanding that it must be done alone. Even if one sits in a group or has teachers and all of those things are helpful, fundamentally, it's a solitary journey. The 96-year-old Mexican Huichol shaman, Don Jose, has told me that I pursued my apprenticeship for 74 years. During these years, many, many times have I gone to the mountains alone. Yes, I've endured much suffering during my life. Yet to learn to see, to learn to hear, you must do this. Go into the wilderness alone. For it is not I who can teach you the ways of the gods. Such things are learned only by yourself, and only in solitude. And that sense of alone and solitude really speaks to the solitude of the heart. It's not necessary to go off alone in the desert, although one might. But it's the solitude you experience even in this retreat. No one can meditate for you. No one can take you through your own heart, through your own experience. So first there's a renunciation, sensing that there's something very profound and wonderful to discover that's been done so before. And then seeing that to do so we have to leave at least temporarily behind the world of our society and go alone into the solitude of the heart. The second stage after renunciation is a quest. That is that this journey is founded on a sacred question. Questioning is important in practice, not the little ones of how much should I eat at lunch or should I sit an hour and a half or an hour and a quarter, but a really deep kind of questioning. A man who had studied much in the schools of wisdom finally died in the fullness of time and found himself at the gates of eternity. An angel of light approached him and said, Go no further, O mortal, until you have proven to me your worthiness to enter into this paradise. But the man answered, Just a minute now. First of all, can you prove to me this is a real heaven and not just the wishful fantasy of my disordered mind undergoing death? 
Before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gate shouted, Let him in. He's one of us. The quality of this question is really a quality of wanting to know for oneself, not taking it second hand, not from the Buddha or Jesus or the sutras or scriptures, but saying, I want to know myself. When it comes time for you to die, you're going to have to know yourself in some fashion. I hope so. So it's a question of who am I or what am I or what is this, as one Zen master asked. What is this? And for each of us, it will come in a different way. For some, it's a desire to know or understand ourselves deeply. For some, it's a desire to come to very deep peace or to transcend pettiness or fear or doubt or anger. For some, it's seeing the world today and seeing its sorrow, seeing Iraq and Iran where 500,000 people have been killed over some empty desert with different, for different names of God. Kids given guns and killed and gassed. And it's still going on. It's going on for five years. Not to speak of Lebanon and Jordan and Israel. And still in Cambodia for 10 years now. 15 years war and Laos, and Vietnam and China on their border, and throughout Africa and places, and Angola and Namibia, Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador. It's nuts. And 50,000 nuclear warheads. Each one or two or three of them the explosive power of the entire Second World War. This is crazy. And so the question can be, who am I? Or how did I get myself into this? Or what is this? Or how does one transcend suffering? How does one learn in the nature of the mind and the heart not to be caught by these things? It's a very deep question. Each of us will have our own variety of it. I remember meeting one man at the medical center, UC in San Francisco. It was a friend of a good friend of mine. He was in his late 30s and he'd just been diagnosed with brain cancer. He'd been prosperous, very much a businessman, although he'd done a little meditation when he was younger and a little bit of Zen, read a few books. And they told him that he had a very short time to live. They diagnosed it as melanoma, which is a very rapid growing cancer. And they said, it's in your speech and understanding center. We feel that if we don't operate, you'll live for six weeks at most. And if we do operate, you may no longer be able to speak or read or write or understand language. We'd like to operate tomorrow. Please let us know. That evening I saw him. He was in a very altered state, as you could imagine. Um, And all he wanted to talk about was Dharma. Because it's the only currency, it's the only thing of value at the times of great life transitions, in times of death, in times of great change around oneself. The only currency they take at the exchange booth is not your passbook from the bank or your American Express card. It's the currency of the heart, the currency of wisdom and understanding and compassion. And that's all he wanted to ask. 
And what was extraordinary, he was so appreciative of life, he said, a cup of water seemed so beautiful and the pigeons that were, you know, leaving their droppings, shitting on the windowsill, he said, it's so great to watch the birds come and land here. It's like his heart was really open. Many of you have heard this story and know he had his operation. Very wonderful surgeon and in fact, the next day when my friend went to see him in the recovery room. He looked up and he said, good morning. And They were able to remove the tumor with still allowing him to speak. But there was a kind of urgency that came to him that had been lost uh, in the Bhagavad Gita at some point. Arjuna asked Krishna, what's the most incredible thing in the world, most marvelous thing in the world? Krishna says, the most incredible thing is that people, human beings, can see others die all around them and think that it won't happen to them. So this, this second step, the sacred question, is looking into your life and your being and your heart and saying, what do you want? What do you want to know? Who am I or what is peace? Or what does it mean to open, to find that? For me, the world is incredible, says Don Juan. It is stupendous, awesome, mysterious, unfathomable. My interest has been to convince you that you must assume responsibility for being here in this marvelous world, in this marvelous desert, in this marvelous time. I've wanted to convince you that you must learn to make every act count since you're going to be here for only a short while. In fact, too short for witnessing all the marvels of it. So there's some renunciation turning inward to the heart to discover, seeing that just the outer things aren't sufficient for our life. Seeing that we have to do it alone and then finding our own question, our own, our own inner guide voice. And the third thing that's necessary is discipline, the third stage. can be in many forms, but it's a repeated, repetitive practice of some kind or other to concentrate and collect the mind to bring us fully into the present moment, to let go of the past and the future and to be here completely and fully and see in a new and deep way. The journey always requires that because our mind and attention is scattered so we can't see clearly. The journey also requires it because the depth of our attachment and grasping is so great and identification with our story and all the parts of ourselves that we need to get very present to see something other than that. It involves a discipline, a building of concentration, of personal power, of investigation, of ability to see deeply into our own hearts and minds and consciousness and senses. And there are many ways that it happens. The native Indians would send their shaman trainees out with a big rock and a little one. and The big one was the earth and the little one was the sun which appeared to go around the earth and say, roll it around day and night without stopping, focusing just on that until you become so concentrated that you can see all of perception in a new way. Ajahn Chah's teacher, Ajahn Man, 
kind of my grand teacher, that was the days of the ascetics in the forest. And he used to send his disciples out in the areas where they'd heard there were tigers. Say, if you really want to learn how to practice, go do walking meditation in front of your cave at night. And then you'll hear off in the distance maybe a little rustling and think... He said, the amazing thing is that you always think the tiger has no other business but to come to the spot just where you're walking and eat you up. And instead of being mindful of it, at first he said, unfortunately, the poor monks and nuns who go out there will practice and do just the thing that's most likely to bring the tiger, saying to themselves, the tiger is coming, the tiger is coming, is their mantra. But he said, unless a place or a practice exercises some compulsion over you, brings you into the present, it won't have the power to really go to the root of who you are. That's one way. can do it here as well. What's needed is great faith, great courage, great questioning. Great faith means at all times you keep the mind which decided to practice no matter what, like a hen sitting on her eggs, no matter what happens. I vow to come to the end of this question. Great courage, bringing all your energy together to one point, like a cat hunting a mouse. The mouse retreats in its hole and the cat waits outside for hours without the slightest movement, keeping the mind just with what you're doing. Great questioning, like a child that thinks only of its mother or a man dying of thirst who thinks only of water. It's called one mind or looking deeply. If you question with great sincerity, there will be only awareness, only seeing what is. This is from Zen Master Sansanim. It's the same. It's a discipline of coming back again and again and again. We fear to commit ourselves somewhat. We think, well, if I really do it, I'll run out of energy or it's scary or who knows what will happen. It's a story of a 90-year-old man that was invited by his grandchildren, grandpa. He'd never had a plane flight. And so they said, well, for your birthday, we'll give you a ride on an airplane. Okay, so he gets goes on the airplane and takes his ride and kind of looks out the window and watches around lands. And they say, well, Grandpa, how'd you like it? And he said, oh, it was very nice. It was very pleasant, interesting. They said, well, weren't you scared at all? Were you afraid the plane might crash or fall or anything? Was it scary? And he said, well, I wasn't too scared, but I never really let my weight down fully on the seat. And in some way, we kind of do that in practice. Well, I'm not really scared. I'll do this and meditate, but we hold back a little bit. You can let your weight down on your cushion and you can let your let yourself really be here and use it fully. This is a kind of perseverance and, and a willingness to be full in practice. That's what makes discipline work. Read this story of the training of the Eskimo shaman. Especially nice given that we're in the middle of a heat wave in the desert. (laughs) In the depths of winter, I like reading this at the three-month course in Barry when the heat goes off and people feel sorry for themselves. In the depths of winter when the cold was very severe, Ijukrachuk, who became a famous Eskimo teacher, was put on a small sled just large enough for him to sit on and carried far from his home to the other side of the ice flow. On reaching the spot, he remained seated on the sled while his instructor built a little snow hut 
with barely room for him to sit cross-legged. He wasn't allowed to set foot on the snow, but was carried from the sled into the hut where a piece of skin large enough for him to sit served as a carpet. No food or drink was given. He was exhorted to think only of the great spirit that should appear and keep his mind concentrated on that and left to himself in his meditations. After five days had elapsed, the instructor brought him a drink of lukewarm water and with similar exhortations left him as before. He fasted now in his snow hut for 15 days when he was given another drink of water and a very small piece of meat which had to last him a further 10 days. At the end of this period, the instructor came for him and fetched him home. Ichukachuk declared that the strain of those 30 days of cold and fasting was so severe that he often felt like he died a little. During all that time, he thought only of the great spirit and endeavored to keep his mind clear and free from all plans and memories. Toward the end of the 30 days, there came to him an extraordinary vision and understanding. For five months following this period, he was kept on the strictest diet and through his courage and discipline to traverse the territory of death itself, of the unknown, became a great shaman, a fearless healer, and a wise man. That's some training. Renunciation, finding in ourselves the question of what do we want to know, to discover, to care about, and then undertaking some discipline that brings us again and again more and more fully into the present moment. Then when one does that, what happens? What happens when you try to concentrate or you undertake a discipline? What, what appears next in the journey? Or as you sit and open, you can talk about it in a more receptive or feminine way. Here you sit and you open and you just sit. What comes? What comes in the Buddhist language is called Mara. Mara is the personification of resistance and fear and hindrances and doubts and defilements and all those difficulties. And the Buddha said that to defeat a thousand people in battle is easier than taming your own mind. Or Zen Master Dogen said, there is the easy way and the true way. So you sit and you say, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit and walk and pay attention and really be here. Because the practice can take you very deep. And then Mara comes in what forms? First as the tempter, desire, lust, fantasy, comfort, an extra nap, sleepiness, all these things kind of taps you on the shoulder. Your mind says, hey, come on, let's just take a little break or let's think about that. That would be a lot of fun. Or let's just relax and lie down a little bit. All these kinds of things that come to move one away from just being in the moment. Mae West said something about desire. What was it? She said, it was Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist anything except temptation. Mae West said something like, um, when forced to choose between uh, uh, two evils, I always try to pick the one, I always pick the one I haven't tried yet. 
Anyway, desire comes and it offers you something new. Try this one. Here's a little variety. Maybe you could have ice cream on top of it this time. Maybe it'll last a little longer than last time. The voice of Mara in every seductive form. If only you have this, then you'll be happy. So what do you do? You just sit and you note it. Desiring, wanting, lust, fantasy, whatever it is. Boredom, sleepiness. You get over that and then Mara comes in a new form. If not through temptation, then through attack. Anger, doubt, confusion, restlessness, frustration. And again, very, very difficult. Everyone has it on their journey. There's no one that passes through the territory of Mara without a visit. So what do you do? You sit and you pay attention and you work with it and you sit and come back again to your breath and you know anger or doubt or confusion and you just stay with it. And you get through all of those and then Mara says, okay, I couldn't get them by temptation and I couldn't get them by fighting. So it comes in the more subtle form. You start to get quiet and there's some clarity and some calm that comes in meditation. And then the attachment to those, the subtle temptation, now I'm calm, now I'm quiet, I've got it, I can hold it. That's the next visiting of Mara. Now, some people told me in the last retreat that it was very helpful to hear about the practice of the people teaching these Vipassana courses. The retreat which we all did with Upandita in this last year, Upandita Sayadaw, who's the Dharma successor to Mahasi Sayadaw and a very famous Burmese master, Sharon and Joseph and myself and Jamie and... uh, Michelle McDonald, who teaches, and a whole crew of people, both those who've been teaching and those who practice for many, many years. We all sat with him, and he was a very demanding teacher. He really required precision and care and concentration. With almost no exception, everyone who did that retreat had a very difficult time, at least for a good portion of it. And I know for myself and Joseph and Sharon, who I've taught with and been closest to for these many years, we all had a lot of physical pain. Joseph had a great deal. Sharon had a lot. And I had a whole lot. Okay, It was fire. Jamie's just nodding there. It was fire. It was all kinds of pain. So there was physical difficulty, lest you think we're sitting up here and it's all just a piece of cake. That was just the beginning of it. Then there were all the mental states of Mara coming. Desire and fear and anger and comparison and confusion and paranoia and doubt and striving and grasping. It was difficult. It was very demanding. My own practice through his guidance and through working very hard, as true for most of the others, ended up getting very deep. It was good practice. I was kind of pleased about that. I would have been real embarrassed if I'd gone in there and not been able to do it. But it was not easy. It was really hard. And Mara came. It's almost like the willingness to sit and stay and just be with it, brought up with it the equivalent amount of energy of resistance and fear and defilement and hindrance. And I tried to be a little gentle the first few days and then I just started to sit and really work with it. And myself, I tend to get sleepy a lot when I sit long sittings 
it turns out that the concentration for some people makes them sleepy. So I did a lot of the retreat sitting very still with my eyes open as a way to bring energy up to be alert with the concentration. And I did long sittings, two, three, four, five hours. Just not moving, keeping my eyes open and just staying in the moment. And for a couple of weeks, it was like sitting on the stove. There was fire, it was like flames. It was extraordinary. Not to say you need to do it that way. For other people, they had other kinds of experiences. But for everyone who practiced in a really deep way with him, there was at least periods of great difficulty. I hope that's both um, encouraging to you, because it's really possible to do, and people got very deep in that retreat. And also, it gives you some perspective that if you're having difficulty, you're not the only one. So Mara comes, and what did the Buddha do? He sat under the Bodhi tree and he vowed not to get up, even if he died. He said, I'm going to sit here and face all the fears and demons and joys and everything until I see the truth, until I come to the bottom of this. Giving up all security to sit and let every realm pass and let every kind of experience For it's in the hardship, in the difficulty, that we begin to really learn to open. The heart opens, the mind opens, the sense of strength of mind, not to resist. It's really a receptive state. It's kind of androgynous. It's not fighting against it, but it's a softening and an opening and a willingness to be there with what happens, with balance and mindfulness. Followers of the way, the one right here teaching with you, this is Zen Master Rinzai, is one who enters fire without being burnt, goes into water without being drowned, and plays about in the three deepest hells as if in a fairground, enters the worlds of ghosts and dumb animals without being molested by them. Why is this so? Because there is nothing he dislikes If you love the sacred and dislike the worldly, if you love anything and dislike the other, you will go on floating and sinking in the ocean of birth and death. The passions arise depending on the heart. If the heart is stilled, why then need you fear the passions? Do not tire yourselves by making up discriminations, but concentrate on what you do just here and now and quite naturally of itself you will find the way. It's through our willingness to sit and at times the very difficulties which arise which bring the sense of clarity, of balance, of power, of openness. It also brings insight. It's There's one thing, the Buddha said, the not seeing of which keeps us bound on this wheel of desire and hoping and expecting. And it's the not seeing of suffering and the pain of grasping and attachment. So we sit here and if you do it fully, in whatever way you choose, some with mental noting, some just paying attention as things arise and pass, finding your own balance with it, Mara arrives. The difficulties. And in these difficulties we learn something magic, alchemical, led into gold. The secret is to actually cooperate with Mara, to give oneself to the process, to see that in truth, Mara, like everything else, 
is empty like a cloud, like a dream. This is the last lesson. The last lesson is the transforming power of love and openness of awareness. It's always left for the very last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude when a person faces their death and aloneness. Only then does it make sense. So there's renunciation or seeking for something deeper than just the worldly. There's a sacred question, discovering in ourselves, what do we really want to know? What do we care about in this very short life? There's undertaking some discipline, some practice to bring ourselves very fully into the present, to see it deeply. And then there's the hardships and the learning to find awareness and balance and insight in the midst of all that which arises to find a space of motionlessness. And out of that comes the possibility of awakening or transcendence. At times you sit and the whole world dissolves. If you're really present and you stay with it, you can take the entire world of body and mind and senses apart. And you see the impersonality of it. You see what the Buddha called the five grasped aggregates, the body, the skandhas, the body, the feelings, the perceptions, memory, consciousness. All that that we take to be self is not so. You can come to a perfect balance where it all just happens, completely empty phenomena like clouds. And out of that comes an exquisite kind of awakening. When the mind is still, is perfectly tranquil, not seeking an answer or a solution, neither resisting nor avoiding, it is only then that there can be a regeneration because then the mind is capable of perceiving that which is true. And it is the truth which liberates and not your efforts to be free. So you get silent and open and you start to see the nature of things. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. You see moment to moment, when you look deeply, everything arises and passes. All that comes into being passes away, moment to moment. And there comes this place of complete balance. It's really like a kind of dying, dying to all this limited identification. I'm this and I'm that. All that dissolves. Our self-images, our desires, the past, the future, our goals. And that allows one to touch two things. First, that which is timeless. Nirvana, the end of movement, of self, of grasping. And secondly, to come to the deepest kind of compassion. Because one can see in that that we're not separate. It's not I and somebody else, but it's this dance that consciousness and light and dark all plays together. And you can play in it and live in it without being so caught by suffering or sorrow or grasping or fear. And the last step of the journey then comes an integration, a return. 
In the beginning, mountains are mountains, and in the middle, mountains are no longer mountains, and rivers are no longer rivers. And everything gets dissolved and taken apart. And you see that it's just seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking, and nothing else. No one, no person, no body. No one going anywhere. Just the play of light and dark. And then in the end again, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. And you come back. Now the shaman or the yogi or any of us who does it, sees that they're really a part of their world, that you're not separate from it, that you are the world in some way. And so you become a seer or a healer or a wise person or bodhisattva who can manifest compassion and fearlessness as one who's traversed and journeyed through the realm of death itself. Now you can help anybody who comes because you're not afraid, because you know what it means to really let go I go to the marketplace, this is the end of the ten ox-herding pictures in Zen, with my wine bottle and return home with my staff. I visit the shops and the market, and everyone I look upon becomes enlightened. It's a spirit of a kind of joy and dance. It comes out of inner freedom. So your practice, especially at this kind of retreat, where there is an emphasis on depth and opening, You already know how to meditate and you can use it in your life as a way to get peaceful and calm and balanced to some degree. Not a lot, you know, but to some degree. And it really makes life open and uh, more joyful. But the possibility of this practice that we undertake is the very liberation of the Buddha for each one of us is a possibility of really going deep into ourselves. And the world needs it, because even one person who has that understanding can affect many in any sphere, whether it's Buddha or Jesus or Gandhi or Kabir in poetry or anyone who has a really deep inner vision in whatever field it is. It's a very wonderful thing. The power of a human being who is committed most of all to the truth. So our practice here has many levels to it. And some of it's to quiet down, to open the body, to become more receptive, to listen to the heart, to become kinder with ourselves. It's kind of a foundation to be kind with yourself. To learn to live in the present in a disciplined way. And then through that, finally, to come to the depths of our being, to come to that which is unshakable in ourselves. And this journey is the most wonderful thing that one can do. And in all cultures and all times, it's considered uh, precious or sacred or beautiful. And wherever it's undertaken becomes a great temple or monastery. Now it's said in the tradition of shamans that at the end of the journey the shaman usually discovers their song and so the Eskimo shamans have their song and the African witch doctors who are the wise healers have their songs. And interestingly enough even the Buddha had a song or a verse that he recited after his enlightenment. It said, Countless are the births I have circled and run 
seeking but not finding the builder of this house of sorrow or separation. O house builder, at last thou art seen. No more shall you build your walls. All the rafters of craving are broken. The ridgepole of ignorance is shattered. Freed is the mind, joyful, awake to the unconditioned. The end of all sorrow has been won. So even the Buddha uttered this beautiful verse or stanza. Work with balance in your practice. Use the retreat fully, pay attention, be really mindful of what you do. But without a lot of grasping or striving, it's as much of an opening or a settling down or a sitting and not resisting, but seeing each thing which comes with clarity that will bring you to a real deep level in this retreat in your practice. It's really a special space and for me a privilege to be with as many people who have done a lot of practice as you all together. I think of all the things in teaching that makes me the happiest myself, it really brings a lot of joy, is feeling the sincerity and the understanding that grows from people who sat for some time who've really done a number of retreats and know how to work with it and start to see opening up of what the mind is and what it means to open the heart and the body and to learn to really sit. So it's just great. I guess I should close with one other poem and then we'll take a few questions. There's a woman who is a good friend. She was on the staff in Barry. Her name's Anita Saunders. She said every time she heard this talk, it made her feel bad because she knew she could never be a warrior. She's, she said she's um, just not cut out for that kind of practice. and She felt a little bit left out. She said it sounded so harsh and, and uh, intense. So she wrote me a poem, which I like quite a bit. She says, Shaman, I will seek no more for visions. Let others go into the frozen wastes who have not made their peace with grass or men. In the sunlight by my door, I take my ease, and all unsought, the visions come and curl themselves around my feet. It's really lovely. So that's the other side. It's really the receptive side of it as well. And the journey has both sides. There is a certain strength or effort. I'm just going to sit here and then I'm going to get up and I'm just going to walk and I'm going to eat and pay attention and just be with what's here very carefully. There's also a receptive side. It's not a struggle, but it's a willingness to open and receive that which comes in each moment. So that's a lot of words for this evening. Questions, concerns, things about practice as it's evolving for you in this retreat so far?
Joseph came, Joseph Goldstein came and gave a talk in the last retreat, which was very nice. It was kind of inspired. He just finished a month of sitting. He talked about meticulous attention and care. And he was going off to sit for three or four months in Burma. And I asked him if he was excited. And he said, well, he was very excited, but he was kind of nervous too because it was so hard in Barry. And he was afraid it would be even more difficult sitting in Asia. So uh, he's just about to start sitting at the same time as you. And as I say, we all share the same difficulties. Any questions? There needn't be if you don't have them. Please. Which particular manifestation? Mara is tempter, Mara is fear, Mara is anger. Pain, physical pain. Um, Does it last a long time? Where? Knees, ankles, back? Uh-huh. Okay, that kind of pain. Right? That's just the fire. All right. Because sometimes, I mean, you can change posture and things if the pain gets too much because it's not to be masochistic about it. But when there's the kind of release of fire in the body, which will happen not to everyone but to some people, if you're able to, just sit and note fire, fire, pain, and then go back to your breath and feel your breath move through the fire. Can you do that? Have you felt the breath? and the fire at the same time? On the breath? Where do you watch the breath? At your nostrils. Hmm. I'm almost tempted to tell you to move your attention and watch the breath into the belly since there's so much happening in your body, and then you could feel the fire when it's very strong, noted heat, heat, or fire, fire. When it's less... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.